Let's open our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel. We've been going through it. We've been taking our time, and I know that many of you, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you have gone through the Gospel of Matthew probably several times. And you know, the Word of God is alive, which means that you can read it today and you can get something out of it, and you can read it three years from today and you'll get something out of it. And it's just that kind of book. It's a spiritual book. It's not a novel that you read once and then you put 25 cents in, on it and sell it in your garage sale in the summertime. This is something that God's Word is alive, and He's always speaking to us And all these different seasons of life that we go through. Anybody going through a season? <laughs> Actually, the answer is yes. Every one of us is going through a season, and there are different seasons, and they're, sometimes they're really good seasons. Other times, they're difficult seasons. But all these seasons of life, God has got something to speak to us through His Word and I pray that you get encouraged by that and continue to read. And don't get caught in your mind to think that, well, I've read the Bible once. I don't need to read it again. It's not that kind of thing. So I want to encourage you to bathe yourself in the Word of God. It's something that I get the great pleasure to do. And i got to be honest, it is the anchor of my soul. Christ is the anchor. His Word is the anchor to my soul. When everything is going to pot and everything is going to hell in a handbasket, can I just say that? When everything is going crazy, I can come to him. I can get in his word and he settles me. And I pray that you find the same comfort. He is the comforter, is he not? And so let's read uh, chapter 9. We're just going to look through maybe the first 17 verses today if we get that far. But remember, we had just spoke last week about Jesus going over to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and there he meets two demon-possessed men. And he casts out the demons, and the men are restored. And remember the issue with the deviled ham. God casts the demons out of the two men and sends them into a herd of swine there on the hill. And we looked at the video of that last week of that area where they just ran down the hill and then they were drowned into the sea. God showing himself again that he's the God over all things. He's not only the Lord of all the earth, he's also the God of things seen and unseen, the things that we can't understand, the things that are invisible to us, the, the spiritual realm all around us which we can't see. God is God over that as well, and he knows exactly what he's doing. Sometimes we doubt that because we want our will to be done. We want our, our satisfaction in whatever it is in our life. We want to see justice, and God has it all covered. And, and I would encourage you to rest in that today. Again, as you see things just seemingly uncontrollable all around us, never forget who's ultimately in control. And I would encourage you to be careful in the things that you take in through your ears and through your eyes, the news and all the podcasts and all of the you know, stuff that you see on different stations. Be very careful about those things because they can either encourage you in this peace that God wants to give you or it can take you out of that place of peace. And God, Jesus, is the Prince of Peace. He wants to give you peace. Yes, even in, term, in, in tumultuous times as we are in. I've never known a time like this. And many of you haven't either. But guess who, guess who has us in the palm of his hands? Nothing in heaven above or on earth beneath can pluck you out of his hand. Isn't that what Jesus said? That means nothing. The word in the Greek, nothing, means nothing. Nothing can pluck you out of his hands. Not even your own will, your own stubbornness. Once God has a hold of you, he's not going to let go. Even when you feel at times that, you've, that you're just tempted to let go because the pressure is too great in your life and you're just like, oh, I'm just going to go back to the way I was. I'm going to go back to the bottle. I'm going to go back to the drugs. I'm going to go back to this. I'm going to sleep around and have multiple partners. Well, you know what? You can go and do those things, but you're going to come to the end of it and you're still going to be miserable. All of those things never give you satisfaction in the long run, but there's only one who can satisfy the hole in your heart that is God-shaped. Only Jesus can fit inside that, that hole that is him. 
He will fill you. And I would encourage you to do that. So Jesus now in verse In chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, let's just read the first uh, 13 verses. We may get to the end of the chapter today, I'm not sure. But notice him, Jesus, being still in Capernaum now, in this area of Gennesaret on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, which it's really a lake, by the way, even though they call it a sea. He got into a boat and he crossed over. Actually, he was on somewhere on the, on, on the other side or uh, somewhere near there. But he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. And then, behold, they brought to him a paralytic on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. But Jesus, notice, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. As Jesus passed by on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said to the man, follow me. And so he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. An amazing passage, isn't it? Jesus, again, just showing his power as Almighty God, as the Messiah, able to not only heal, uh, you know, to exercise demons out of two men, the power over the unseen realm, but now, again, continuing to show that he is the Messiah, being able to heal a man who was paralyzed for quite a long time. And then for Jesus to call Matthew And to go into his house for a supper and dine with tax collectors who were the most ridiculed of the the time. They were looked down upon, and we'll look into that. But to have dinner with sinners. I'm so glad that he likes to have dinner with sinners. You know why? Because he likes to have dinner with me. And I know I've, I've sinned, and I am a sinner. In fact, that's the prerequisite, isn't it? to having a relationship with Jesus Christ, is to come into an acknowledgement that I am a sinner. In fact, I was born in sin. I was born a sinner, therefore I sin. I don't sin because I'm a a sinner. No, I sin because I was born into sin. I was born with a nature that was opposed to God. That's why I sin. And hallelujah that Jesus came and saved us died on the cross for me and for you when I deserved that judgment, when I deserved eternal damnation, when I deserved the resurrection of damnation, to spend an eternity in the lake of fire, in Gehenna, in the final pit, where all those who have rejected Christ, including Satan, the false prophet, and the Antichrist, all of them will be there, along with all of his fallen angels. They will all spend an eternity in the lake of fire. It tells us that, doesn't it, in Revelation, in the end of Revelation, in 20 and 19 and 20. Let's go back to verse 1 now. Jesus If he is the Messiah, he's certainly going to be able to prove that he is who he said he was. 
And so Jesus, notices he got into a boat and crossed over and came to his own city. Now we know that Jesus lived in Nazareth. Now Jesus is at least 30 years old now, uh, maybe even 31, and so Joseph has passed from the scene. Joseph, at some point in Jesus' life, had died, and it was basically just him and his brothers and his mother, Mary, that lived in Nazareth. But now, Jesus calls Capernaum, when it says, to his own city, it's speaking of Capernaum. Because remember, Jesus was rejected right prior to this event that we're looking at, actually many events prior. Jesus, remember, went into the synagogue, and it records for us in Luke chapter 4, uh, verses 16 through 30, that Jesus went into the synagogue, and he sat there, and an, an attendant brought him the scroll of Isaiah, and he read He read from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, and he read this. Remember, he said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stops right there. He doesn't continue with verse 2 in Isaiah 61, verse 2, because the rest of the verse says this, and the day of vengeance of our God. So verse 2 says, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. But Jesus didn't come to judge Initially, he came to save. He came to seek and to save what, that which was lost, right? So he ends and says, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he folded up the scroll and he handed it to the attendants. And he went and he sat down and the eyes of everyone were looking upon him. At the gracious words that he had said, they were, their minds were blown. Never have they heard such gracious words like this. And then they said, isn't this... Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph? How can this man be? There's something different about him, very different. And then Jesus goes on and he upbraids them for their unbelief. And they were mad because he had done miracles in Capernaum and they're like, why aren't you doing them here? Well, because of your unbelief. Because of their unbelief. And so his rejection had occurred prior to this. And so Jesus finally makes his headquarters, if you will, in Capernaum, which we know was where Peter lived, right next to the synagogue there in Capernaum. And Jesus stayed with Peter, Peter's wife, and Peter's mother-in-law. Because he would say later, in Matthew 13, he says, A prophet is not without honor except in his own house. He went to Nazareth, was sharing with them. They had wanted nothing to do with him. And so now he leaves his hometown. And by the way, Nazareth is just a few miles up the road from where Capernaum is. We take that road when we go to, to Israel. We, we, we went to Nazareth this last time, and we actually entered the very synagogue that this is speaking of. When he was in the synagogue, we stood on the very floor, the very floor. Everything else had changed around it, but the floor was original to that synagogue in Nazareth where Jesus spoke those words of Isaiah. And then we continue to drive down the hill, in between the mountains, finally down to Capernaum, there on the western shore of the Galilee. But a prophet is not without honor except in his own home, in his own city. Isn't that interesting? He came from Nazareth. Certainly the people heard about the miraculous birth. Years go on and they see Jesus growing up like a normal person. But realizing there's something unique about this man because, this young man, because he he listens to his parents. He's obedient. He hasn't done anything wrong. Something about him. But yet when the time came for him to reveal himself to his own, they rejected them. And isn't that the heart of mankind? Jesus came to his own. He came to the Jews first, and they rejected him. And so he goes to the Gentiles. How many of you today are Jewish? Raise your hand. Only a couple have Jewish blood in you. 
The rest of us are, guess what? Gentiles, pig eaters. Yes. People from the other side of the lake eating the different kind of meat over there on the eastern shore. Yes, we're Gentiles. And you are here today because of the ministry of the apostles after they had rejected Christ. The word had spread one by one, and you and I are beneficiaries today of that ministry that began so long ago. But let's look at verse 2 now. It says, Then behold, notice, they, they, underline that, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, underline that too, because that's significant. And then he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. Now Mark's gospel tells us that four men came to the house there in Capernaum. And because the crowd was so uh, around the house and they could not get in to see Jesus, these four men lifted their paralytic friend who was on a bed. They lift him up and get him up on top of the roof of the house. And then they start tearing apart the roof of the house. Can you imagine? Right over where Jesus was sitting. So there he is speaking really gracious words, loving on these people. And all of a sudden he's getting dirt on his head. And little pieces of palm frond are coming down on his feet. He's looking up, and all of a sudden he sees daylight. And I, I would imagine the Lord's just going, wow. You know, Peter wasn't very happy because he's going to have to repair that roof. But Jesus is thinking, my goodness. They are so determined. They believe in me so much that I can heal their friend, that they're willing to destroy somebody's roof to bring and, and, and to lower him down right before the feet of Jesus. And then Jesus would say, son, your sins are forgiven you. Hey, wait a minute. I didn't come here to get my sins forgiven. I want to be healed. What's the sin business? Think about that for a minute. He said, son, your sins are forgiven And that may have been where Jesus stopped. And the implication is there was something that this man had done in his life that had caused this malady to come upon him. Maybe it was a result of sin in his life. It's not always. We can never assume that because we have some malady that it's because of some sin in our life. But there are times that it definitely is. And this appears to be one of them. He said, son, your your sins are forgiven you. And notice that Jesus responded to their collective faith that they had in his ability to heal the man. Whether the man who was brought up had faith, we don't know. But his brothers, his friends, they did, these four men. They had faith to believe. And I believe the man did too, himself. But he looked at their faith. Not just the man, the paralytic's faith, but collectively their faith. And the Lord loves to respond to true faith. Not faith in faith, not faith in something else or faith in your 401k. No, faith in him alone. He responds wonderfully to true, unadulterated faith. And here he does. He responds And at the same, and at once, some of the scribes said within themselves when they heard that, because the scribes and some of the Pharisees were there too, and they said, This man blasphemes. And notice they said it within themselves. This man blasphemes. Well, what does the Bible have to say about blasphemy? In Leviticus chapter 24, let me read it to you. It says now, and this is Leviticus 24, beginning in verse 10. Now, the son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel. And this Israelite woman's son and the man of Israel fought each other in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of Jehovah and cursed. And so they brought him to Moses. And uh, and it tells his mother's name and his father's name. But in verse 12 it says, Then they put him in custody, that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take outside the camp him who has cursed. And then let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin, and whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And all the congregations shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who was born in the land, when he blasphemes the name of the Lord, and he shall be put to death. That sounds really uh, extreme to us today. 
But there is a consequence for sin, isn't there? And there ought, in order for us to have a a good society, a society where things run well, there has to be a consequence for sin. The day that there is sin and then there's no consequence is the day of the fall of whatever nation it's happening in. And the United States of America is in the pit. They are in the pit. Today, even in our own state, you can commit a crime and go in and have a cashless bail. And I don't want to get political, but I'm just being honest with you. That's what happens. And, and, and there was recently a thing that came out where this guy was arrested. He, he was in there. He got cashless bail. He got out and went and killed his wife. But there's a consequence for sin. And there are times when God says there are certain things that there must be the death penalty for. But because it was true that Jesus had the right to say this, Son, your sins are forgiven. Because it was true that he is the Messiah, they should have received him as the Messiah. They should have worshipped him. And again, you know, Jesus makes his headquarters here because he was rejected in his own town. But Jesus, notice verse 4, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Knowing their thoughts, underline that. That's kind of scary, isn't it? Does God know your thoughts? Before you speak, does God know what you're thinking? He does. Notice in verse 3, the scribes said, notice, within themselves. This was not something they spoke out loud for everyone to hear, but Jesus knew their thoughts. Again, proving that he is God in the flesh, the Messiah, the King of Israel. What does it tell us in Psalm 139, one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible, a Psalm of David. We're just going to look at the first four verses. David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. I don't know about you, but that's really frightening to think about. The word that I'm going to speak tomorrow at this exact moment, God could already tell me what it is. And I would forget about it, and I would say that word because he knows the end from the beginning. That's who we serve. We don't serve an impotent God. We serve an omnipotent God. He is all-powerful. He knows our thoughts. And there's something about that that just raptures my heart. You know why? Because if he knows my heart, and I've said some really, and done some really awful things. If I were God, even now as a born-again believer, as a pastor, he knows what I'm going to fall into or say, something I'm going to say or do that's going to be really horrible. He knows that information right now. And yet he loves me right now. And he doesn't hold me accountable to it until I open my mouth or until I do that deed. But he knows that right now, and yet he loves me so. And he loves you too. Isn't that encouraging? It's scary on one side, but it's encouraging on the other. Because he knows. And Jesus says, why do you think evil in your hearts? Notice that Jesus said you know, that it was evil by thinking this way. For the scribes, it was evil because Jesus held them accountable, what? For the light that they had already had. The light that they had already been shown. They were accountable for their thoughts concerning this. And again, remember how Jesus was always getting at the heart of the matter. More focused on the internal rather than just the external. Remember what he said earlier when we were in John chapter 5. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He knows what I'm going to think. He's more concerned about the internal than the external. Isn't that wild? Because the external adultery, that's a physical thing that happens. But he's saying, oh no, but there's 
I want to get right to the, I don't want to put a band-aid on that. I don't want you just to commit that sin and then put a band-aid over it. No, I want to get to the core of it. I want to get to the very meat of it, the very center of it, and I want to change it. I want to give you a brand new heart. And isn't it wonderful when he does? Before long, you're like, you know what? I don't want to do that anymore. I'm sick of the way it makes me feel. I'm sick of the way it makes the guilt that I feel. I'm sick of the way it hurts other people, and I'm sick of the way I feel. When you get to that place where you're sick of it, you're sick of hurting other people, and most importantly, you're sick of sinning against God, you're going to quit. But until then, you won't. And it's true. Even as a Christian, even a blood-brought Christian, But with all of the evidence of his claims to be the Messiah, the scribes had no excuse. They had no excuse. That's why it was sin to them. That's why God held them accountable. It was sin to them. So what is your excuse for not believing in Jesus, the Messiah? Jesus, the Son of the living God. Now most of us here today, I'm willing to say that we we do believe. But there are others. Hey, Johnny. Can we turn that down just a slight smidgen? If there are others who are going to hear this message that are driving in the car and they don't believe. There are others that are going to hear this message. And what is my excuse? What is your excuse for not believing in Christ? Let me suggest to you that whatever excuse it is, it's not a good one. It's not good at all, because there is no excuse for mankind to reject their creator other than a heart that is dark, a heart that is bent on sin. So what is your excuse? If you're here today and you don't know for sure, come up after the service, speak to somebody next to you, receive Christ, and be saved forevermore. Once you are saved, you are glory-bound. You are no longer going to be the recipient of hell. Regardless of your performance, if you are truly a child of God and born again, you are heaven-bound regardless of the process that it takes, the sanctification process that ensues throughout the life. You're going. And I am so thankful for that. And it makes me want to love him more. It makes me want to turn away from these things that I know are wrong. It makes me want to consider every word that comes out of my mouth, every action that I apply myself to. It makes me want to filter all those things through the Spirit of God. And if I do that, I'm going to live a blessed life. And I'm going to be able to lay my head on the pillow at night without having to take Xanax or whatever. You can sleep at night because you have a clear conscience. Jesus said in verse 5, For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? (laughs) Well, the easier thing would be to say your sins are forgiven because there's no way to validate that claim. And yet that's the very thing that Jesus said as those four men lowered their friend right in front of him. He said, son, your sins are forgiven you. And there are people going around, well, that doesn't appear to be the the need here, Lord. Can't you see the guy can't get up out of his bed? He's He's a cripple, probably for 38 years. Can't you see the need? But Jesus addressed the greater need. You're 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 in sin your whole life. And in fact, your sin is probably, and only Jesus knew this, caused this malady that you're in. But that's the bigger deal, is that your sin is forgiven. Not that you're healed. You could go on from there and be happy as a clam because your sins are forgiven. But notice Jesus validated his authority and his ability to forgive sins by performing the miracle of healing the man. Notice that the miracle was the sign that validated his claim of being able to forgive the man. Jesus didn't validate the miracle, or Jesus' word, excuse me, didn't validate the miracle. The miracle validated his word. And folks, there's a, an important order there. 
In fact, in Mark chapter 16, it tells us, and I'm going to read from the King James Version because I like this better in this passage. It says, And Jesus said to them, Go into all the world. Mark 16, beginning in verse 15. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. But he that believes not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. If they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay their hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So, when, so then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven, and he sat on the right hand of God. And verse 20, here it is. And they went forth, and they preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, and confirming the word with signs following. Do you see that? Confirming the word with signs or miracles following the preaching of the word. Do you notice it's not the other way around? The word is preached, a miracle is given to validate what was spoken. Because how are you going to validate something that God says unless he says, well, let me put a cherry on top. You know, you got this nice banana split, my word. Well, I'm going to add a little bit extra. I'm going to give you the cherry on top just to make you smile. And the smile that you get from seeing a miracle confirms his word. Now, God doesn't always need to do that, but he did it. He did it here. He spoke. He made a command. And they're like, big deal. How are you going to validate that? I could have said that. Well, so that you may believe that the Son of God has the ability to forgive sins. Arise and walk. And take up your bed and walk to your house. And the man did, and everybody's jaw hit the ground. They were all drawing flies because their mouth was wide open. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. And we see this precedence even in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 3, what does it tell us? God speaking to Moses. He says, come now therefore and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people out, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And so he said, I will certainly... Be with you. And this shall be a sign, there it is, this shall be a miracle to you, Moses. This shall be a sign to you. I was like, wow, the Lord's returning. It's really cool. But I didn't hear the sound yet, so I wasn't too alarmed yet. He says, this will be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God in this mountain. So what does God do? He gives him the word. He's struggling with the word that God, the the command that God had given to him. And so God throws a little cherry on top and says, now watch what happens. When you go into Pharaoh, or or, I'm going to make a pact with you. That when you're done bringing the people, you're going to come back here to this mountain. And when that happens, you will know that I have spoken to you. And so that was sufficient, evidently, for Moses. But now he goes in before Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 4, and it says that Moses answered and said to God, but suppose they will not believe in me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. And the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a rod. And he said, cast it to the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. And then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out and he took it by the tail. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, now put your hand into your bosom. And he put his hand in and he took it out and it was leprous like snow and he put it back in and, it, and then it wasn't. And then it shall be, if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first miracle, that they may believe the message of the latter sign, the latter miracle. And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land, and the water which you have taken from the river will become blood on the dry ground. So what is God doing here? Moses now with the command to go release the people from, from Pharaoh and from Egypt. He gives them the command of God. And of course they're going, well, who is he? We could care less about who Jehovah is. We've got Ra, the sun god. Who's this? And then Moses says, well, have you seen this? And he throws the rod down and it becomes a snake. Let's see you do that. 
And they, they did, and he did some other things. But the, the idea is that God confirmed his word with miracles, with signs. And it's always that way. It's not the other way around. The word of God doesn't confirm the miracle. The miracle confirms the word of God. Because what is more important, the word of God or the miracle? The word of God. The order is very important there. But notice verse 6, But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take your bed and go to your house. Notice what Jesus put more emphasis on. It was his word, not even the miracle. His command was more important than anything. Your sins are forgiven you. That was the most important thing. But that's not what everybody wanted. They wanted the miracle. I want to see something. I want to be entertained. I could care less about my sins being forgiven. I just want you to, you know, provide lunch. And he arose, verse 7, and departed to his house. The man did who was healed. Now when the multitudes, verse 8, when they saw it, they marveled and noticed and they glorified God, which is a good thing. They glorify God, and here's the, the sad part, who had given such power to men. It's interesting that it didn't seem to help them in their faith, seeing this miracle. It didn't help them in their understanding of who Jesus was. They just said to themselves, wow, that such power had been given to men. And they glorified God, and Jesus was glad because God should receive the glory. But they still didn't get it. That he is God in the flesh. Do you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh? The son of the living God? See, that's what makes Christianity different from any other world religion. No other world religion had a leader that died for your sin. No one had died for your sin specifically. Someone who was perfect, almighty God, died for your sin. No one can make that claim. And yet Jesus did. Doesn't he deserve glory? Doesn't he deserve praise? Oh, he does. He does. And this goes to show you and prove to you that miracles don't necessarily cause people to believe in God. Jesus said to the scribes, it says in Matthew 12, verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, teacher, we want to see a miracle from you. We want to see a sign. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three nights and three days in the heart of the earth. Jesus knew that a miracle would not produce saving faith. And it's true. Miracles don't produce saving faith. But faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. That's how I got saved. It wasn't through somebody pulling a rabbit out of a hat. No, it was hearing the word of God, convicting my filthy soul, convicting me to the point where I was in tears and convulsively crying on the ground. I remember that night. I cried convulsively like a baby in a fetal position because I was so filled with so much sin. And in that moment, knowing that God had forgiven me for every one of them, I cried a river that night. I'll never forget it. But the multitudes and even the religious leaders, they saw miracles. It didn't produce saving faith. Of all the miracles that occurred on that day that Jesus was hung on the cross, only a few believed. Yes, as Jesus was hanging on the cross, in Matthew 27, it tells us that there was an earthquake. It tells us also that the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This very thick, it was at least that thick. You try tearing that from the top up to the bottom. It was very high. God is the one who tore that veil. No man could have done it. They didn't have chainsaws back then. They couldn't just stand up on a ladder and just cut down it. No, your blade would be hamburger before you got to the bottom. 
And then the graves of those recently deceived were, or deceased were opened and they were raised and they were raised to life and seen by many in Jerusalem, yes, but none of that produced saving faith in everyone. A few got saved and praise the Lord for that. But notice now in verse 9 it says, And Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. And notice, Matthew arose and followed Jesus. Matthew is first, his name is first spoken here in this verse here. And the last time we're going to hear mention of him will be in Acts chapter 1, verse 13. But Matthew's name literally means gift of Jehovah. And so who was this man? He was a man who was originally named Levi. He lived in Capernaum where Jesus was with Peter and his wife and his mother-in-law. So so Matthew was from this town that Jesus was now taking up residence. He was a tax collector employed by Herod Antipas to collect toll or transport taxes. He was the son of a man named Alphaeus and thus perhaps even the brother or the half-brother of James. Not James uh, and John of Zebedee, but the other James, James the Less. And he was also, this Matthew, one of the twelve disciples and the author of this gospel account. Matthew was equipped to write this gospel because he no doubt had a great gift for detail. As a tax collector, he would be writing all day details about transactions and things that had occurred. And as he writes this gospel, he is very detail-oriented. And he has a specific thing in mind. I want to prove to everyone that this is Jesus Messiah, that this is the king, the rightful heir to the throne of his father David. This Jesus Christ. And you remember that tax collectors were hated at that time because Herod would say, all I need you to do, and I'm just going to throw out some numbers so you can understand. He would go, he would, uh, Herod would tell Matthew, Matthew, I want you to go to every house and I want you to collect four, uh, four shekels from each person. I don't know what the number really is, but collect four shekels, and then whatever you take on top of that is up to you. So Matthew would say, you guys owe six shekels apiece. So they would give six shekels, and he pockets the two from each person. So now he becomes a wealthy man, and most tax collectors did this. I'm not assuming that Matthew was of this ilk, but they, many of them did that, and, um, and, that, and that's the kind of thing that happens. So whatever they were to collect above and beyond what Herod asked him to, to collect was his. He could buy a new whirlpool bath. He could do whatever he wanted with it. And people hated him for it. They were despised. They were traitors to the Jews because you're you know, uh, conspiring with our enemies and you're getting rich off us. I see a problem with that, don't you? Your own people, you're going to exact more from us, and no doubt you're driving the Bugatti around town and everyone else is walking around on sandals. There's a a problem here. Can't stand that man. Always flashing his gold and his gold bling around his neck. Walking around with the finest threads from London and Paris. Now it happened, verse 10, as Jesus sat at the table... Notice, in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Notice, in the house. Underline that phrase, in the house, because normally you know that Jesus was in Capernaum, so you're thinking to yourself, like I was, this must be Peter's house. Because when it speaks of in the house, it normally speaks of Peter's house, because that's where Jesus resided. But the other gospel accounts, in fact... The other parallel accounts to this in Mark and Luke, the other synoptic gospels, tells us that this dinner was held not in Peter's house, but in Matthew's house or Levi's house. It tells us in Mark chapter 2, verse 15, that it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners gathered together, for there were many and they followed him. So now he's in Matthew's house, and think of the great joy that it must have been for Matthew to host Jesus. This man who was 
no doubt aware of his own sin and realizing how everybody hated him. Nobody wanted anything to do with him, but this itinerant preacher, which every, the whole town, the whole area was a buzz about, all these miracles, and Jesus says, I'm going to come to your house tonight. And Matthew's going, being saved himself now, being a believer in Christ now, in the Messiah, he's like, I'm going to tell everybody, I'm going to bring all my friends, all my crooked tax collectors, and all of these sinners, and I'm going to bring them in together. And I love that. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you for being even associated with this man? He was supposed to be a holy man. And he does this. He hangs around with tax collectors and sinners. The implication is we have teachers and Jesus is not one of us. He's not one of our teachers. And none of us would sit with tax collectors and sinners. And notice that they didn't approach Jesus directly. Who did they go to? His disciples. Very seldom does somebody who has a problem go to you directly. They go to somebody who knows you. Now, maybe it was just the circumstances. Maybe it was easier to speak to the disciples because of maybe their lack of proximity to Jesus. But I also believe that the Pharisees were very intimidated by Jesus and were hesitant to call him out directly. Remember, the Pharisees were consummate politicians as well. They would like to feel the room out before they would commit themselves to anything. Who's here? Who might I offend? Who's, 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 who am I trying to curry favor with? I don't want to say anything against them in this public gathering. They don't go to Jesus. They say to his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know, the natural inclination of a holy person, notice I said natural, is to not conversate with sinners, not to be around them, not to associate with people who are questionable or sinners. But remember, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He was not a bigot. He wasn't afraid to associate with anyone, whether they were Jew or Gentile, whether they were prostitutes or thieves, murderers, gossips, busybodies, rich or poor, those who had light skin or those who had dark skin. He made no issue with any of that. He was not partial. He was not a respecter of people a respecter of persons. And as Christians, we shouldn't be respecters of persons as well. We shouldn't be partial to one person over another. In the church, there should be no racism of any kind. We are all the same. We all came from Adam. I don't know why people can't get that through their thick heads. There is one human race, and we are all from that. We may have different skin pigments and different features, but thank God for that. Can you imagine everybody looking like me? Thank God we're different. And can't we love each other and be different? But racism has no place in the church of God. It has no place. Paul Rebuke Peter, if you remember in Galatians, Paul's very first letter. Galatians 2, verse 11, it says, When Peter had come to Antioch, and Paul says, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For, there, for before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, meaning that when the Jews came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision, meaning of the Jews. So he was feasting with Gentiles until the Jews came, and then he withdrew from them. And Paul rebuked Peter publicly to his face over this issue. Because he knew that the gospel separated all that nonsense. The playing field is leveled at the cross, folks. I don't know if you knew that. But this passage that I just read to you certainly was speaking of hypocrisy, but that's what being a respecter of persons is. It's hypocrisy.
And Jesus, eating with these tax collectors and sinners, he's modeling what Paul would say later. In 1 Corinthians 5, it says this, I wrote to you, verse 9, in my epistle, not to accompany with sexually immoral people, Paul says to them, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexual immoral people of this world, or, or, or uh, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, or, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, a drunkard, an extortioner. Not to even eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves that evil person. We can't, as we go into the world, we're going to have to be around people who are all of these things. And Jesus, he takes the tax collectors, the people that nobody wants, the sinners that nobody wants to be around because now they're too holier than them. And, and God is like, I've come to save sinners. That's why I came. And then five or six years earlier than this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he wrote to the Thessalonians and he said this in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 6, But we commend you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw, notice, not from the world and the people in the world, you've got to tell them the truth, but withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which you have received from us. And then he goes down in verse, verse 14 of that same chapter and says, if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not accompany with him that he may be ashamed. And I love this, verse 15, he says, yet do not account him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So what's the point here? If Jesus was in a room full of people who claim to know him, he's going to get on their case. He's going to tell them the truth, and it's going to sting. But for those who didn't have any idea who he was, didn't even know that there was a sin issue in their life, all of a sudden, these unbelievers are being confronted with the truth, not only of who they are, but what God has done for them. And we have to continue doing that. What I just read to you in the example of Jesus is perfect for that. He communed and ate dinner with tax collectors and sinners. And what did Peter tell us in chapter 4, verse 17? For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it, continue, if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? In other words, for those who don't know Christ. Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? In other words, I was saved by the skin of my teeth by my, my trust in Christ, and if that's the case with me, then where are the sinners going to appear? There's going to be no hope for them unless they come to Christ. So there's no need for me to act holier than thou and not being willing to reach out. Now, obviously, you've got to use caution and common sense. You can't just defile yourself to the point where you're trying to reach somebody and you know you shouldn't be in a place that you ought not to be, and yet you're there trying to minister, but then you're, you know, tying a few ones on yourself. Because after all, I don't want to look stupid. But Jesus was more strict with those who claimed to be a believer and those who were leaders than those who did not know and weren't believers. What did he, what did he tell us in John chapter 8, verse 44? Jesus, speaking to the religious Jews, what did he tell them? You guys are just so wonderful. You know, I just wish I had more time to spend with you because, you know, your, your, your faith in me is so obvious and it's so evident. I just, I really enjoy hanging out with you guys. What did he tell them? No, <laughs> you are of your father, the devil. <gasps> you can't say that to me. I've got a robe on. And I've got the breastplate with all the jewels. I've got the bling. You can't tell me that. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. What did he tell them in Matthew 3 to the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Would Jesus say that to a person who was genuinely in their sin and not knowing anything about him? No, he would be very gentle. But he really gave them the business who claimed to know him and yet were hypocrites. They were hypocrites. 
Saying one thing, sharing the words, and everybody's going, oh, he's so wonderful. But yet, in his own private life, he's having three affairs. He's extorting money from the church. Jesus has words for people. And he will speak harshly to those of his own when necessary. He would say to the scribes and the Pharisees, brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? (coughs) Excuse me. And he can say that with perfect authority. But what is the bottom line here? We are not to be impartial. But we are to hold those in Christ to a greater accountability. Your own selves to a higher accountability than unbelievers because they don't know. They need to be told. You, you have to rub shoulders with them from time and again. Otherwise, how are they going to hear the message? If somebody's not sent to them, how are they going to hear? How are they going to hear without a preacher? And you and I are preachers. We need to preach to them. Tell them the truth. And bigotry and racism, none of that has, means anything. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter what party you're affiliated with. Whether you're Democrat, Republican, Independent, Martian, I don't care what it is. It doesn't matter. Has God called us to only speak to Republicans? Or has he called us to speak to everyone? Every single person is a candidate for the kingdom of God. And we need to lay that straight and get it straight in our heart today. Lord, I'm not going to care about any of those things. Every person, every single person, regardless of who they are, how rich or poor, whether they're a serial killer, whether they are, doesn't matter. They are a candidate for the gospel. They are a person whom God loves Do you know that there are serial killers in history? And there's a famous one that gave his heart to Christ, as far as we know. I'm not going to tell you who it is. You have to go look it up. He gave his heart to Christ. And can you imagine the families? Oh, yeah, right. Now that he's in prison, he gives his heart to Christ after he's mutilated my daughter. Think of that. How would I feel? And that is the depth of the grace of God. And it breaks our hearts. And let it break your heart. Because you know what? I need to be broken. I need to be broken into a bunch of pot sherds on the ground and let him fix me. Because I need my heart. I need to be broken. Like a, like a stallion that's wild. That horse needs to be broken before it can be ridden. My will needs to be crushed under the foot of God. And not until then will I surrender my heart. I don't know about you, but that's one of the things that I just, I collapsed underneath. And it's a great thing to give your will to God. My will means nothing. Your will means everything. Crush it, God. Stamp on it. Crucify that old thing and kill it. And help me to be the first one to stick a knife in it. It's got to die. Kill it, God. My will needs to die. Your will needs to die. And how do we know the will of God? Well, you read the Word of God. His will is obvious. It's manifest all throughout the Word of God. As you know the heart and the nature of God, you're not going to do the things that are against the heart and the nature of God. Thus, you will be in his will. And then specific directions for your life, he can do that as well. That are different from each one of us has a different thing that God is doing and a purpose and a plan that he has. What a joy it is to find it. But verse 12, and we'll end here. Oh boy. When Jesus heard that, he said to themselves, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And it it makes, it's common sense, isn't it? Those who are well have no need of, of a physician. This is true. If we were all well, we wouldn't need to go to see a doctor, but we have a malady called sin 
that is inherent in every person who's been born. And that's why we need to call on Christ and receive him as Lord and Savior. Because we all have this malady that's incurable apart from the blood of Christ. That's why Jesus is called the Savior of the world, because the world needed saving. It needed to be saved, but not all the world will come to him. But Joel tells us that it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Paul quoted it in Romans 10. And Jesus didn't leave us in our hell-bound state, but he paid the price for our sin, gave us a means to be forgiven and to go to heaven for eternity. And for all of that, mankind said, no thanks. The most ungrateful people on the earth Humankind, after what Jesus has done. So Jesus, in verse 13, he's now speaking to the Pharisees, and he says, but you go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I did not call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. The Lord knows who are his. He came for those who are not his. He came for them. God is merciful to the sinner, and I'm thankful for that because I qualify. But God desires mercy, as we see in this verse, but he also desires obedience rather than sacrifice. Didn't he say that? I want mercy over sacrifice. And he also demands obedience over sacrifice. What did he tell us in Samuel? And then we'll end here shortly, in a few moments. Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice, and to heed or to listen than the fat of rams. And it doesn't mean that the righteous have no need of repentance. You may be a born-again believer in Christ, and you may also have things in your life that need to be repented of. But he has come to seek and save the lost. See, that's the difference between cold orthodoxy Cold religious orthodoxy versus a true relationship with Jesus Christ. Cold orthodox religion would not have these tax collectors and sinners in the house. Cold orthodoxy will not allow itself to be inconvenienced and the possibility of being defiled. But Jesus and those whom he has called, they're okay with being inconvenienced. They're okay with being spit on at times. Isn't it true that the real Christian will run into a burning house to save someone, but the cold and orthodox man in robes may not? In Jude chapter 1, what does it tell us? But you, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves, notice, in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, and on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Does that sound like somebody who recoils from a challenge? Does that sound like somebody who recoils from difficulty? No, it sounds like someone who runs right into it and says, I got you, I'm taking you out. What did the angels do in Sodom and Gomorrah? Did they leave Abraham and Lot and his sons and daughters? Did he leave them there? No, they had to drag them out of Sodom before God destroyed it with fire and brimstone. That is the heart of the godly, to reach out. And the Pharisees, they didn't know it, but God says, you know what? I've come to seek and save that which is lost. I am not a respecter of persons. I don't care whether they are Republicans or Democrats. I don't care whether they are tax collectors or sinners. I don't care if they're black or white or any other color. I do not care. I've come to seek and to save the lost. And finally, I'll give this to you. Galatians 6, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. We are to be the ones running into the building that's on fire. And there's a lot of houses that are on fire today. There's a lot of people inside those homes that don't know the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And you and I, folks, we have this great, wonderful ministry. We have this wonderful hope within us to go out and share it. And as we approach 
now that Thanksgiving is behind us, as we approach Christmas, consider those things. And those family members that you're angry with, maybe you haven't gotten it right with them. Maybe there's great bitterness and hatred even between groups of people. And every family there is. Will you be willing to be a catalyst for Christ? Would you be willing to bury the hatchet, so to speak, and get things right? Even if, some, even if it's not your fault, somebody else has a problem with you, and are you willing to address it? And to say, you know what, I know this is not the great time to do this, but you know what, I love you. And I know you've had something against me for years. And it's horrible. We don't even like spending time. We, we do the, you know, we get together and we have this token meal together, but there's really no fellowship at all. It's just togetherness, but there's no real unity. Would you be the one to try and get things right? You'd be glad if you did. All it takes is for you to swallow your pride and for us not to be a respecter of persons. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the hope that we have. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning, including myself, Lord. I pray that you would just touch our lives and hearts today, that you'd melt us, Lord. We are in need of your forgiveness. We are in need of your cleansing. We're in need of healing in so many ways, God. Would you please touch the family of God today in this fellowship and heal relationships in our families? Lord, would you touch us today and and help us to be thankful for all that you've done, Lord. To you be the glory and the honor and the power and the praise now and forevermore. And everyone said, Amen. 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 God bless you.